0: Welcome to Engineers and Enthusiasts, the beginning of computers in the arts. I'm your host, Christopher J. Garcia. Load Program. You have to have a name. Every new movement in art, music, anything, you have to have a name figure to move it forward, to bring attention to it. In the history of computer music, while Max Matthews and others are relatively well-known. It wasn't until the late 1960s that computer music really got a name participant. And it got a name participant because of some amazing work that had been done prior. In 1958, the Experimental Music Studio was formed by Ladger and Hiller, Jerry to his friends, who is one of the more fascinating figures in the history of computer music. He was both a composer, a musician, but he was also a chemist. And in 1958, he left the chemistry department to join the music department and found the experimental music. Because of his work in the sciences, he recognized the value of a computer. And that was important. Recognizing that a computer can be used as a tool within a new mode is incredibly important to the evolution of that tool. In essence, it is realizing that you can make a game that makes things important. And when they funded the Experimental Music Studio, it only came up to about $8,000 worth of equipment. But they had access to another computer, and an important computer, the Iliac one And the concept began in 1948. After the war, the machine ENIAC had been built at the University of Pennsylvania. And the first generation of computer pioneers worked on ENIAC in various different ways. One of the people who worked on it was John von Neumann, who is probably the most important figure in the development of the stored program concept as we understood it in the 1950s. And initially, I believe, I'm not 100% on this, there was an idea that for 150 grand they would build a completely new architecture. But by the time the contract came up, von Neumann's design for the IAS, Institute of Advanced Studies machine, was already out there. And so, so, the University of Illinois built their own machine, the ILIAC, the Illinois Automatic Computer. And that was available for use in 1952. It had 2,800 vacuum tubes, was 10 feet high, 2 feet wide, 8.5 feet tall. It's a monster. And it was one of the most powerful machines in the world. It had more computational ability than all of Bell Labs. When it was fully operational in 1956. It could store a whopping 1,024 40-bit words in its memory. This seems laughable to us today, but you have to understand that this was huge. And there were limitations on how you could interact with the machine. But one of the interesting things was it was the only computer at the University of Illinois at the time. In fact, I'm not 100% certain it wasn't the only computer in Illinois proper. So time for it was very, very scarce because everyone wanted to use it. You have to consider this. There were no computer science departments. There were electrical engineering departments, which is usually where the computers went, sometimes in the maths department. But how you would do it, of course, just like with the other machines, you would program your program offline, punching it to paper tape. You would then submit it and they would run it in batches. And batch processing was sort of the legendary way. And initially, The Experimental Music Studio had no access to ILIAC. They had things like a couple of waveform oscillators that could come up with various waves to make various noises. They had a theremin, a record player, a portable tape recorder. And the stuff they were doing initially was interesting, but not really computer music. It was electronic music. But they eventually got to use the ILIAC one And the ILIAC one was really important to the entire concept. There's a great book waiting to be written about the locations, the physical locations of important spaces in the history of computer music. And the University of Illinois Experimental Music Studio was housed in a single attic room in Steven House on the campus. And it was basically, there was an electronic music equipment, there was a workshop, there was a classroom area, there was Hiller's office. So very important little, little thing. And so in 1956 and 57, Jerry Hiller and Leonard Isaacson, another figure who's very important to the history of computer music, began to pro- produce a work called The Iliac Suite. <laughs> Now, as you can see, this wasn't performed by the computer. This is where it is markedly different from what they were doing at Bell Labs. Instead, what Hiller did with Isaacson is develop a methodology by which a computer could write the music. And we'll see this time and again across the history of computing as we do this podcast and how the arts integrate computers. There is one thread that is using the computer as the instrument to present, which is what we saw in CRAC, what we really saw in Bell Labs, and then the side that is to create. And typically, all the creations start the same way. They start with the computer as a blank slate that is then programmed with a set of rules within a framework that limits the possibilities of the computer. In essence, it's not just, say, go create art, it's go create art within these guidelines. and. Hiller absolutely got one thing right. He believed that ultimately computers are mathematical tools and all music can be kicked down to mathematics. Hiller has a couple of quotes on this uh, that I got from the wonderful article on Iliac Suite on musicainformatica.org. But he said, Music is a sensible form. It is governed by the laws of organization which permit fairly exact codification. Sounds like... Someone who really understands that computers work with symbols very, very, very well. And that once you understand that music is simply a set of symbols, at least the composition side of it, you really get that. He also said, the process of musical composition can be characterized as involving a series of choices of musical elements from an essentially limitless variety of musical raw materials. And this, to me, is garbage. Yes, there is a seemingly limitless, infinite number of possibilities of what you can do with music, except every piece of music exists within a human space and an expectation space. The human space is we just react to music in a particular way. So discord and all of that stridency, all of that affects humans. So there is a natural human disinclination towards that to a degree. Remember, nothing ever applies completely to the avant-garde. The other side, though, is the expectation space. And this is where the rules come in. And as we'll see when I talk a little bit about David Cope's work, it's not necessarily about the expectation space being the genre in which something is in. Though that does, of course, apply. It's more about the expectation space being the kinds of things which Western music can deal with. This wasn't exactly doing microtonal work. So there are almost... From the get-go, limitations that are placed upon music. Rules that are very easy to program into a computer. And this work, to me, is just beautiful. I love this. There is something computer-like to it. And the methodology that Hiller used was something called the Monte Carlo methodology, or the Monte Carlo method, sometimes called the Markov chain Monte Carlo method. It really boils down to this. You are testing a system by using random elements and then finding the collisions, more or less. And by finding them, you find within the commonalities, you find out the strength of the system. It's a bit different, I think, but that's really the method. It was developed largely by a guy named Stanislaus Ulam, who was on the Manhattan Project, worked a lot with guys like John von Neumann, Edward Teller, Nick Metropolis, it was really one of the really key figures of mathematics of the 20th century. And by applying that, it allowed random generation of the music notes within the structure that Hiller had laid out. And this is what we got for one of four experiments. He didn't call them movement, which is probably right, because as an experiment, it's very interesting. And what I love about this work is that as you look at it, each element, it feels as if, not necessarily that it's a different composer, but that the concept of the composer as an element within the piece is still there. This section happens to be my my favorite really, but it's also the least, I don't wanna say least historically interesting because that's not true. It's the least boundary stretching. The other segments, way more boundary pushing. <laughs> Now, what I love about that piece is that it feels like a piece of computer music. And some might say that's a knock, but it's absolutely not. It is absolutely saying what I think was really important about the Iliac Suite itself in general and the work that Hiller did early on to begin with, that it was important. It was intelligent, but here there's that sense of mechanization to it. There's that feel, as if it is a machine going. But it's not gimmicky machine-like. It's not the industrial symphonette. Which, yes, it's gimmicky, but it's also amazing. I love it. Maybe it's my love of Bugs Bunny. But if you look at how this piece relates to the rest of the Iliacs, it becomes fairly obvious that, at least early on, computer music wasn't supposed to be producing great traditional art music. And here it feels like the boundary is being pushed. You have to remember, this is 10 years before NC, before the rise of minimalism, before all of that, that really made the computer far more applicable to the world of orchestral and art music. The Iliac Suite had actually multiple debuts. And the first three segments were done by July of 1956, which didn't include sort of the coda of the third experiment. Now, what's interesting is that on August 9th, 1956, University of Illinois, which had, of course, financed all the research, did the first performance of the Iliac Suite for Strings Quartet, although it was only the shorter version of the first three movements, experiments, whatever. It was really a huge freaking deal. But a more important version, I think, happened on August 28, 1956, at the 11th National Meeting of the Association of Computing Machinery, the ACM. This is a technical conference. And a big, important technical conference at the time. The ACM was, along with the IEEE, the most important groups. I guess there are others, too, but those were really the big... Those were the 800-pound gorilla. And to present a work like this at an ACM conference, that meant something. That was the acceptance of the music within the computing space. And without that, it becomes more difficult to... I don't want to say be taken seriously within that realm, but it kind of is that. It's the fact that it is easier to gain acceptance from the computing world than it is from the mainstream of the music world. And I'll get some heat for that. I'll take it. But if you look at the way that things like the Iliac Suite are treated in the traditional world of music and basically anything, honestly, uh, how... How programs that are art in nature get treated by the intelligentsia of the art community—does that sound suitably pretentious? Um, how they're treated initially is fairly poor, but they are often exalted by the technical side. The finished work wasn't played until November of 1950, and then it was—that was published. Remember, publication presentation is the key to everything. Without publication, it is not. It doesn't really happen. It must be published. And it was. And it was performed. And I think it was great. I honestly love Iliac Suite. But the story of the Iliac Suite is not the most important thing. But it did serve a very important function. It gave us the person they needed. And that person was John Cage. And when I think about modernism, the person I'm thinking of first is John Cage. An absolute pioneer in every possible way. His famous 1952 work, 4.33, 4 minutes, 33 seconds, is 4 minutes and 33 seconds of silence. But it's really a theater piece. He was doing things like prepared pianos, messing with pianos, putting things in on the strings. He was an amazing figure in the avant-garde, and a hugely important one. He also did some beautiful artworks that really spoke of the time. And of course, my man, Maris Cunningham, he collaborated with a lot. And he was often working with chants which I think is really key, because if you work with chance, you learn that there are methodologies of doing chance that are utterly, utterly perfectly built for computers. Also on a personal note, Cage had a lot of interactions in the Bay Area. In particular, uh, I believe he came to San Francisco and eventually became a professor at uh, Mills College, which, nice thing. Uh, John Cage is a huge figure. Maris Cunningham, another gigantic figure. And the work he was doing, you know, 433 is the great theater piece, as far as I'm concerned, that deals with music. I can't think of a better theater piece that really explains the entire concept of the listener as the participant, the viewer as the stage upon which everything is actually being played. And Cage became interested in Chance Operation in the 1950s and 60s. And he ended up going to the University of Illinois. At the Experimental Music Studio, he worked with Ladger and Hiller. And the two of them did a couple of experiments. Hiller hadn't stopped creating new works after Iliac Suite. He, in fact, Computer Cantata, a work that is not as groundbreaking to me as Iliac Suite, but another interesting one he created afterwards. And it's an interesting piece that has a lot of elements to it, a lot more elements than certainly the Iliac Suite but it doesn't have the sort of groundbreaking feel to it. So at Illinois, John Cage came and was producing interesting works. He had a commission that in particular was very important because it was by a harpsichord aficionado, Antoinette Vischer, and it was a complicated piece that he was working on. And he had to submit two pieces related to the field of computing technology and chance procedure. He had been working with the I Ching, so they came up with another way to do this working with Hiller and the piece and the piece H.P.S.C.H.D. was amazing and strange. And for someone like Cage to begin working with computers was a big deal. It would be like Andy Warhol working with a computer, which he didn't do until the 80s. It would be like one of the major figures in film working in computers in the 1950s. Didn't really happen. There are rumors that Sal Bass used a computer to do the opening credits for Psycho, but I'm not 100% certain on that. But HPSCHD was a huge deal. I'll just call it harp score. And it was a complex process to do it. And he actually had to bring in outside consultants Jim Cuomo, Letitia Snow, another very interesting figure, James Grant Stroud, and of course, Max Matthews. But the initial performance was held before an audience of 6,000 people on May 16th, 1969, at the Urbana campus of the University of Illinois. And it wasn't just the music, it was an immersive. It was a multicultural experience, because you had 208 tapes that had computer-generated sounds going, and you had 52 tape players, and you had movies and slide projectors projecting movies, 6,400 slides, and you had seven people playing harpsichords, including David Tudor, another major figure in the history of computing, and Yuji Takahashi also, another one who I've got to talk about on one of these podcasts, and they even projected on a 340-foot circular screen just insane and supposedly during the premiere an image of beethoven wearing a university of illinois jersey with cage's face on it on paper tunics was passed out to people in the audience hey it was the 60s anything went man crazy a huge huge movement this led to and the pieces were published and there were more experiments done also but this was the key to gaining the interest Of the mainstream of the music world. This was really the piece because it was John Cage. Never believe that a significant figure being put in front of a movement will not help it. It certainly will. And Cage's participation here and HPSCHD, let's just call it harpsichord, were a huge step forward for computer music. And I think what we'll start to see is that once you had someone like that, everyone started to get more and more interested. Remember, about this time, there were rumblings of more studios like this. There was one in New York already. There was several several institutions that were interested in computer music, but very few focused centers. And we weren't too far away from the most important of them all, Karma, which we'll talk about later. But, but Cage really made it all possible. He absolutely focused a name onto computer music. And while it's not the most approachable piece you'll ever hear, harpsichord's really fun. <laughs> Even after the introduction of Cage's work to computer music, there was still a hostility, but it was lessened. And in fact, other people began to work with the computer world because of what Cage had done with the HPSCHD harpsichord. But what's interesting is that Hiller's work, most of it following 57, when he did Illyac Suite, most of it was traditional. It wasn't computer-based, or even computer-used, but he did create he did create a language called MusiComp with Robert Baker, and that's what they used to create computer cantata. But in 1968, he left the experimental music studio to go to the University of Buffalo and was the first computer music faculty there, and he retired in 1989. I know Cage worked with a number of different things, and I think he might have done one or two other Computer-driven pieces, but this is the one that he's best known for. But what's interesting, and is always the case, it is not necessarily the initial people who are introduced to computers in the arts, but it's the people that they teach or that they encounter. James Fulkerson, Larry Lake, David Rosenboom, Bernadette Speech, who I am desperate to interview someday, all studied under Hiller at the Experimental Music Studio, and the idea of the computer as an aspect to be manipulated into the music world, particularly for the creation of music, not just the performance, was a big part of why the Experimental Music Studio at Illinois was an important thing. We're going to take a little break, uh, not sure, a few weeks at least, maybe as much as a month. But when we return, we're going to talk about Keio University and their work with the Tossback Computer, which resulted in a piece entitled, which may sound somewhat familiar if you realize the ties, the Tossback Suite and how Japan Computer Music Experiment led to some incredibly interesting work.